I want to read this passage in Luke 15 to you out of the New Living Translation. As we're winding down this series, you're starting to get to know this passage pretty well, I hope. You can almost tell it on your own without me reading it. Luke 15, 11 to 32, from the New Living Translation. Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now instead of waiting until you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. And a few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and took a trip to a distant land, and there he wasted all his money on wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. And he persuaded a local farmer to hire him to feed his pigs. And the boy became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him. But no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, At home, even the hired men have food enough to spare, and here I am, dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired man. And so he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long distance away, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. And his son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf that we have been fattening in the pen. We must celebrate with a feast, for this son of your mine was dead and now has returned to life. He was lost, but now he's found. And so the party began. And meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working, and when he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house, and he asked one of the servants what was going on. Your brother's back, he was told, and your father has killed the calf we were fattening and has prepared a great feast, and we're celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in, and his father came out and begged him, but he replied, All these years I've worked hard for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to do. And in all that time you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. And yet when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the finest calf we have. His father said to him, Look, dear son, You and I are very close, and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day, for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he's found. You got that parable cemented in your head yet after all these weeks? The central force force of this parable The nucleus around which everything in the story revolves, I believe, is the glamour of grace. The glamour of grace and the joy that God's grace produces in us. 
Heavenly and earthly celebration over a spiritual wanderer come home is the recurring theme in Luke chapter 15. Jesus gave it a triple thrust analogy. Just back up in your Bibles in Luke chapter 15. Look at verses 5 to 7. The first thing that he tells in this parable was about the lost sheep that goes wandering off from the 99. And verse 5 says, when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Look at this uncharacteristic excitement over a once lost sheep here. And then in the next few verses, verses 8 to 10, we find the unmatched exuberance over a once lost coin. Verse 8, what woman, if she has 10 silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. And Jesus says, I tell you, in the same way, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then in verses 22 to 24, right in the midst of the text that we're looking at, we find that the incomparable extravagance over a lost son. These are the verses that I want to key on today. Verse 22. But the father said to his slaves, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him, put a ring on his hand, sandals on his feet, and bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Friends, the facts are that the idea of lavish celebration is all throughout the Scriptures. Old Testament and New. Celebration belongs to God's kingdom. And God rejoices. Do you think God rejoices? Jesus lives in the joy of his father's realm, his father's house. And I believe it's a joyful place. Even in the midst of incomprehensible sorrow, during human history's most despicable and deplorable yet spiritually defining moment, the crucifixion of an innocent Messiah, I might say, Jesus ultimately, says Hebrews, had what? Joy. He had joy in his mind even while sorrow was in his heart. It was a blessing, not a curse. A table of feasting rather than a tomb of despair. The writers of Scripture pinpoint this revelation with emphatic declaration in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2. It says he was willing to die a shameful death on the cross because of the joy that he knew would be his afterwards. Now he is seated in the place of highest honor beside God's throne in heaven. Even though the prophet Isaiah identified the Messiah as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief in Isaiah 53.3, throughout the New Testament, Jesus repeatedly talked about and prayed for sorrow? What? 
joy. He prayed for his joy to be in us and that our joy may be made full. Is that right? John 15, 11, John 17, 13. Even in the Old Testament, the focus of prophetic revelation always includes the future joy that is promised to a once wayward people who will eventually come home. Zechariah chapter 8. Just turn there really quickly. Zechariah chapter 8, the Old Testament. If you can find it, it's right at the end. One of the minor prophets. Zechariah 8, verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women will again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each man with his staff in his hand because of age. And the streets of the city will be filled with boys and girls playing in its streets. What does that sound like to you? Sorrow or joy? Joy. The rejected will be restored. Zechariah prophesies. And then he says, he continues on, it says their poverty will become prosperity. Look at verse 12. For there will be peace for the seed. The vine will yield its fruit. The land will yield its produce. And the heavens will give their dew. Not Mountain Dew, by the way. The dew of heaven. And I will cause the remnant of this people to inherit all these things. And it will come about that just as you were a curse among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so I will save you that you may become a blessing. A little further along, Zechariah says that the fasts will become feasts. Verse 18. Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the fast of the fourth and the fast of the fifth and the fast of the seventh and the fast of the tenth months will become joy, gladness, and cheerful feasts for the house of Judah. So love truth and peace. The rejected will be restored. Their poverty will become prosperity. The fasts will become feasts. And then fourthly, the foreigners will become family. Look at verse 20. Thus says the Lord of hosts, it will yet be that the peoples will come, even the inhabitants of many cities. And the inhabitants of one will go to another saying, let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I will also go. So many peoples and mighty nations will come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Foreigners will become family. What's the bottom line in all of this? According to the Apostle Paul's exhortation in Romans chapter 14 and verse 17, it's all about the joy of living in the light of the Father's salvation. Let me say that again. It's all about the joy of living in the Father's, the light of the Father's salvation. Amen. Romans 14, 17, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. What in this world do you suppose would bring God joy? Looking around at the landscape of this world. What do you suppose in this world could or would bring God joy? Henry Nouwen has insightfully written, God rejoices not because the problems of the world has been solved, 
not because all human pain and suffering has come to an end, nor because thousands of people have become converted and are now praising him for his goodness. No, God rejoices because one of his children who was lost has come home. That's what the scripture says. What I am called to, what you are called to, is to enter into that joy. To enter into that joy. Celebration belongs to God's kingdom and should adorn God's people. Amen? Amen. But remember, as Eugene Peterson observed, joy is not a requirement of Christian discipleship. It's a consequence. It's a consequence. As I've said before, we cannot make ourselves joyful. At least not for very long. True joy is not self-motivated. It's not personally manufactured. It's not financially purchased or politically arranged. It comes only as the result of hearing God's voice in the midst of our pain and deciding to live in response to Him. I don't think any of us are truly comfortable with the image of a God who is always throwing parties. Are you? kind of goes against the preconceived picture of that we have of God of being sober, serious, and solemnly stiff, right? The fact is that whenever Jesus describes God's kingdom, how does he describe it? Lavish banquet, a feast, a full-blown party is often the central occasion. Matthew, turn to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew 22. Verse 2. The kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. And again, he sent out other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Behold, I've prepared a dinner. My oxen and my fattened livestock are all butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went their way. One to his own farm, another to his business. They were too busy. Chapter 8, verse 11. Matthew, chapter 8, verse 11. Notice what Jesus says. I say to you, he says, that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham. Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. We're picturing a feast here. But the next verse says, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's a sad statement, isn't it? Revelation chapter 19, the end of the story. Revelation 19 and verse 6. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and the sound of many waters and like the sound of many peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. 
Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And then he said to me, right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are true words of God. You get the picture of the feast, of the rejoicing, of the celebration? A wedding feast to the Jew meant an all-out, no-holds-barred party. It went on for days, included the entire community of extended family and friends and was usually a pretty raucous occasion. Now, I'm not suggesting that Jesus approved of drunkenness or immoral and loose behavior. What I am suggesting, however, is that when Jesus talked about heaven's kind of rejoicing, the kind that he's inviting us to participate in, it's not about a bunch of rigid, stuffed shirt, way too intense people sitting around a cafeteria table, afraid to crack a smile for fear of appearing like they're having a good time. It's about a full-fledged, pull-out-all-the-stops, once-in-a-lifetime event that has no conceivable limits or end. Wouldn't that be great? Sounds just like what the father spontaneously and excitedly set in motion upon his prodigal son's return. Sounds like just like what the same father had to plead with his snub-nosed, holier-than-thou oldest son to actually come in and attend. When I read this description, read this description, I can't help but be reminded of the words penned by the prophet Isaiah over 600 years before Christ preached this parable looking to Israel's future as joy as they return to their Messiah. If you'd like to turn there and hold your finger in Luke 15, it's Isaiah chapter 61. You've heard me preach on this passage before. But it's such a parallel to Luke 15. Isaiah 61, 10 and 11, parallels Luke 15. The celebration part. Look what Isaiah says. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He's wrapped me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes the things sown in it to spring up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all the nations. I see this amazing parallel between Isaiah's words and Jesus' description of the Father's controversial reaction to a wayward son's homecoming in Luke 15, 22 to 24. This is an invitation to joy. It presents God's grace as almost too glamorous for us. Too attractive, too easy, too joyful. I mean, really, shouldn't a father in Luke 15 just tone it down a bit? You think? Just a little? Turn it back a notch? I mean, we don't want to give people the wrong impression, do we? Speaking of impressions, I'd like to ask us all a serious question. What kind of impression are we giving instead? Humorist Irma Bombeck provides convicting insight 
when in one column she once wrote this. She said, in church the other Sunday, I was intent on a small child who was turning around smiling at everybody. Wasn't gurgling, spitting, or humming, kicking, tearing the hymnals, or rummaging through his mother's handbag. He was just smiling. Finally, his mother jerked him about in a stage whisper that could be heard in a little theater off Broadway. And she said, stop that grinning. See, I remember days like that in the Catholic church when I was growing up, when I was about this guy. That was back when the Latin masses were in Latin. And you did not move in that pew. Stop that smiling. You're in church. And with that, she gave him a belt. And the tears rolled down his cheeks. And then she added, that's better. And she returned to her prayers. Irma says, suddenly I was angry. And it occurred to me that the entire world is in tears. And if you are not, then you better get with it. I wanted to grab this child with the tear-stained face close to me and tell him about my God, the happy God. The smiling God. The God who had to have a sense of humor to have created the likes of us. Amen. By tradition, one wears faith with the solemnity of a mourner, the gravity of a mask of tragedy and the dedication of a rotary badge. What a fool, I thought. Here was a woman sitting next to the only light left in our civilization. The only hope. Our only miracle. Our promise of infinity. And if he couldn't smile in church, where was there left to go? Friends, if Jesus tells us anything about the Father's heart in this parable, he reveals that celebration belongs to God's kingdom and should adorn God's people. Why? What reason do we have to rejoice anyway? In one writer's words, from God's perspective, one hidden act of repentance, one little gesture of selfless love, one moment of true forgiveness is all that is needed to bring God from his throne to run to his returning son and fill the heavens with the sound of divine joy. Whenever a person comes to Christ and sincerely asks for forgiveness, a celebration is in order. Heaven is partying. You can argue with the scripture if you want, but read verses 7 and 10. Right? Heaven's partying. Why shouldn't we? What's so glamorous about grace? Well, as Isaiah says here in Isaiah 61, it's glamorous because he has clothed us with the garments of salvation. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord, Isaiah 61.10 says. My soul will exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He's wrapped me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Luke 15 Verse 22, the father says, quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand, the jewels, sandals on his feet. 
See, it's readily obvious to me that the father in this story is more than just a poor farmer. He's clearly well-to-do. He's got servants, plenty of property, and the means to pour out generous and lavish gifts on people. And he's eager to do it. The words of repentance are hardly out of the son's mouth when the father orders this celebration to take place. He seems almost impatient in his reaction. It's like he'd been waiting for this for so long. It's been pent up inside of him for months, even years. What a picture of the heart of our heavenly father who desires that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth before it's too late. He doesn't want anyone to perish, but for all to come to repentance, 2 Peter 3.9 says. How rich in mercy and goodness he is. How willing he is to forgive you and me. Cleanse us from every sin and clothe us with the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. Just look at what the father does for his son. Look at what he does. In uh, chapter 15 again. While the son is prepared to be received as a hired servant, the father will have no part of that. He wants only the best for his son, so he gives him the robe of honor. Clothed him with a robe, the best robe, and put it on him. And then he gave him the ring of authority. Put a ring on his hand. And the shoes of a son. Find it interesting that he says there, Jesus says there, put sandals on his feet. The importance of shoes in that society cannot be overstated. For the majority of us, we go without shoes as a matter of choice, don't we? I think I'll go barefoot today. Be cool. <laughs> Yet I remember a story my father told me about his youth. Some of you have heard it before that most of my Generation and certainly all of our children's generation cannot even fathom this story about my father who was one of ten children living in a time of depression. My father, once a year, they bought six pairs of shoes and six changes of clothes. And then all ten of those kids had to share them. My father had to share one pair of shoes with his younger brother. One pair between them. Because my dad did better in school, he would stay home from school so my uncle could wear the shoes and get to class. Don't miss the symbolic importance of shoes in this parable. One author says, bare feet indicates poverty and often slavery. Shoes are for the wealthy and the powerful. Shoes offer protection against snakes. They give safety. They give strength. They turn the hunted ones into hunters. For many poor people, getting shoes is a benchmark passage in their life. The father dresses his son with the signs of freedom here. The freedom of the children of God. He does not want any of them to be hired servants or slaves. He wants them to wear the robe of honor, the ring of inheritance, and the footwear of prestige. It's interesting that Jesus, on the night of his betrayal shed himself of every vestige of nobility and took the garb of a servant and stooped to wash the disciples' bare feet. He removed their shoes. As a symbol not only of his humility, 
but of his willingness to lavish upon us, lavish us with unheard of grace, purifying us and exalting us to the privileged yet undeserved status of disciple, follower of Christ, child of God. Look at what he has done for all who comes to him. Ephesians chapter 1. I can't reiterate this passage enough. I don't know how many times I've actually quoted this passage this week, even. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. Just as he chose us, chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. To the praise of the glory of his grace which he freely bestowed upon us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to the kind intention which he purposed in him. And it goes on and on. What an incredible inheritance we have been given. In an interesting twist, Frere Pierre-Marie, the founder of the Fraternity of Jerusalem, a community of monks living in the city, reflects on Jesus as the prodigal son, which we're going to talk about next week. Interesting thought, Jesus as a prodigal. He sees Jesus as the prodigal son who, quote, left the house of his heavenly father, came to a foreign country, gave away all that he had, and returned through the cross to his father's home. All of this he did not as a rebellious son, but as an obedient son, sent out to bring home all the lost children of God. Colossians chapter 1 Verse 19 says, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to, fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast. Doesn't that sound a lot like Isaiah 61, 10? which says, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord and my soul will exalt in my God for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. That's what Colossians 1 is describing. He's wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. His righteousness. 
And we, like the prodigal son, have been clothed with those garments. Our feet washed in sandal, our hands decorated with the ring of significance, and our bodies wrapped with the robe of Christ's righteousness if we have received him by faith. We have new clothes. And that's all that the Father sees when he looks at us. That is an amen, isn't it? It's all that the Father is interested in when he looks at us. He's not interested in our past sins. The mere thought of which creates an atmosphere of sorrow and depression in us. Rather, he is focused on the present truth of who we are in Christ. That we were washed, we were sanctified, we were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 2.11 says. He is fixated on our future glory, all of which constitute an occasion for exuberant celebration. Yes? Not everyone buys into that thought, however. The case of the older brother clearly shows that the joy of the father is not shared by all. In fact, that joy has aggressive enemies who seek to accuse and dismiss the biblical facts out of hand. Paul once asked in Romans chapter 8, verses 33 and 34, who will dare accuse those whom God has chosen for salvation? His choice select especially beloved children. Who will dare accuse? We know many who will. Then you try anyway. The government, society, our unbelieving family, friends, acquaintances, and Satan himself, who is the accuser of the brethren. In fact, Satan is our ultimate and relentless accuser, isn't he? Revelation 12.10, that's what he's called. The accuser of the brethren who accuses them before our God day and night. Day and night. Day and night. 24-7. Yes? That's what he does. And sometimes he succeeds in making you and me feel guilty. Right? He reminds us of our past and we forget about our future. He did it to Peter, sifting him like wheat. The truth is, however, is that if we're in Christ, we've been declared not guilty. Whatever guilt we may feel is not based on the truth of God's word, but on the lies of Satan's charge. The Bible gives us this interesting glimpse of what may take place in heaven in the courtroom drama as it unfolds. And you can look at it yourselves in Zechariah chapter 3. It talks about Joshua the high priest standing before the throne of God and being accused of his sin. Satan continually accuses believers before God just like that. He's ruthless. He's heartless. He's tireless. But guess what else? He's totally caseless. His accusations are completely groundless. He has no chance of getting a conviction on a true child of God. Whenever Satan brings a believer up on charges, he's fighting a lost cause. You know why? Because the instant God clothes the person with the garments of salvation, all accusations lose their validity. 
All accusations lose their validity. Why? Because when the accusations are leveled, when the charges are brought before God, guess what happens? Jesus steps in as our advocate. Romans 8.34, out of the message, and who would dare tangle with God by messing with one of God's chosen? Who would dare even to point a finger? The one who died for us, who was raised for life to, to life for us, is in the presence of God at this very moment, sticking up for us. Do you think anyone is going to be able to drive a wedge between us and Christ's love for us? There is no way. That's what the message says. Romans 8, 34. When Satan stands up in God's court and brings an accusation against you as a believer, you don't need to fear. You know why? Because you get the best advocate in town. Jesus is your lawyer. He's your advocate. So the next time you feel Satan's accusations are being leveled at you before God, trying to disrupt the joy of your salvation, just remember that no matter what he brings up, if you are a believer, it doesn't have any bite. When Satan says to God, whatever accusation he makes, Jesus says, nope, check my hands. There's holes in them. Check my feet. There's holes in them. This is where the crown of thorns were. I died for him. I died for her. And I rose again on their behalf. She's mine. He's mine. You don't have no part. You have no part with them. No condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. Secondly, in this passage in Isaiah 61, coupled, paralleled by Luke 15, 23, he has encompassed us with a garland of joy. Verse 10 in Isaiah 61, it says, As a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. This is how God has wrapped us with the garments of salvation. These are beautiful verses filled with the joy of celebration. Look at the greater context for a moment of Isaiah 61. A garland for ashes, gladness for mourning, praise for a spirit of fainting. Verse 3. Look at verse 3 of Isaiah 61. To grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Look at verse 7. Instead of your shame, you will have a double portion. Instead of humiliation, they will shout for joy over their portion. Therefore, they will possess a double portion in their land and everlasting joy will be theirs. This is what's in the future for Israel. Literally, this is what's in the future for us spiritually. This is true replacement theology, folks. A garland for ashes. Spirit of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. Luke 15, 23 says, Bring the fattened calf. Kill it. Let us eat. Let us celebrate. See, the father's desire in Luke 15 is to offer his son a banquet. It's an invitation to intimacy. Table fellowship. 
And it's not a private affair either. The public is invited to this feast. The whole family, indeed the entire community, is invited to celebrate here. That's precisely why we invite everyone to join in and celebrate every new believer's baptism service in this church. Invite your family, invite your friends, invite anybody that you meet in the store stopping to get a drink on the way down to the baptism. Tell them to come. And all should come. Because we're all called to enter into the joy of someone's homecoming. And it's a joy that is far beyond what the, what the world offers beyond what the world offers. One of the things I've learned through this parable is that the father gives himself entirely to the joy that he feels over his son's return. And all of us could learn from that, couldn't we? I know I could. I'm really kind of reserved sometimes. Again, as Henry Nouwen says, I have to learn to steal all the real joy there is to steal and lift it up for others to see. Yes, I know that not everybody has been converted yet, that there is not peace everywhere in the world yet, that all pain has not been taken away, but still I see people turning and returning home. I don't have to wait until all is well, but I can celebrate every little hint of the kingdom that is at hand. Joy never denies the sadness, but transforms it into a fertile soil for more joy. What an astounding God we have. He isn't so aloof that he cannot rejoice over us. He doesn't sit in a stoic stare, arms folded, tapping his foot, thinking to himself, well, it's about time you finally woke up to the truth, buddy. It's not God. It's not the God that I read about in the Scripture. Now, that's what you and I would do. But God rejoices. Jesus said, when one repentant sinner comes home, one. Statistically, writes one author, that is not very interesting. But for God, numbers never seem to matter to him. From God's perspective, one hidden act of repentance, one little gesture of selfless love, one moment of true forgiveness is all that's needed to bring God from his throne to run to his returning son and fill the heavens with the sound of divine joy, like I said earlier. That's a reason to celebrate. Now, you heard my daughter's testimony a few weeks ago. That was a huge reason for us to celebrate. And other daughters come home. I could tell you stories of people that have sat in my office and guys, big, strong, burly guys that are crying and just weeping, giving their hearts to Christ. Another son come home. There's nothing like that. There is nothing like that. No concert, no celebration, no church service can compare with sitting in a room with somebody and having them give their heart to Christ. Another son come home. Pull out all the stops. Let the party begin because it's been going on in heaven for a long time. Quick, the father said, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger. Sandals for his or her feet. Kill the fattened calf. We've been fattening in the pen. We've got to celebrate this feast for this child of mine was dead and now has returned to life. They were lost, but now they're found. 
And from the heart and the mouth of one who returns come words similar to those penned by the psalmist David. You have turned my mourning into joyful dancing. Yes. You have taken away my clothes of mourning and clothed me with joy that I might sing praises to you and not be silent. Oh, Lord, my God, I will give you thanks forever. Psalm 30 says, my friend, celebration belongs to God's kingdom and should adorn God's people. We have good reason to celebrate. He's clothed us with the garments of salvation. He's encompassed us with a garland of joy. And at bottom, finally, is the truth that he has embellished us with a garden of grace. He's embellished us with a garden of grace. Again, Isaiah 61 and verse 11. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts and as a garden causes the things sown in it to spring up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all the nations. Jesus said in Luke 15, for the son of mine was dead and has come to life again and he was lost and has been found and they began to celebrate. My dear friends, Every single moment of every single day, you and I have the choice and the chance to go against the tide of a cynical world. We have the chance to choose joy, to live in the sphere of God's amazing grace. And as one man wrote, every thought I have can be cynical or joyful. Every word I speak can be cynical or joyful. Every action can be cynical or joyful. People who have come to know the joy of God do not deny the darkness, but they choose not to live in it. They choose not to live in it. What will you choose? Will you choose joy? Or will you choose to live in the darkness that is all around us? It's up to you. Choose joy, Jesus says. We must celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and lost and has come to life again. And the best way that we can choose to celebrate is when we see others come to Christ. And when others come to Christ, that requires that we share our testimony with them. That we share Jesus with them. That we fulfill the mission and purpose statement of our church, which is to introduce people to Jesus Christ and to help them to become his committed followers. And that's how we celebrate. When we're busy about his business 